from Commander's Palace Restaurant in the Garden District in New Orleans. We're out to lunch with Peter Raschuti. Peter Raschuti is Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and economist. It's business New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Raschuti. Once a week I have lunch at Commander's Palace and invite guests from the world of New Orleans business to join me. We're all familiar with the notion of commodifying New Orleans culture to lure tourists here. Our current mayor, Mitch Lander, is very positive about putting our culture front and center in marketing the city. Cultural New Orleans is generally assumed to be our musical culture. But there's another side to New Orleans culture that is less talked about but is incredibly vibrant, and that is the visual arts. Along with young entrepreneurs who are flocking to New Orleans, creating a business climate like we've never seen here, young artists are moving here from across the country to join established artists, giving birth to a bustling art market. Perhaps I should say rebirth. We have a long history of being a home to artists, including Degas and John James Audubon. My guests at lunch today are artists John Fleming and artist and arts administrator Maya Volkmer. John, Maya, thanks for coming to lunch with me today. Thank you. It's good to have you guys. This is, uh, is going to be fun. You know, Maya uh, Volkmer is the Arts Market Manager for the Arts Council of New Orleans. The Art Market is the monthly gathering of local artists in Palmer Park, which seems to me to be a relatively recent tradition, but the Arts Council has been around for 36 years. The Arts Council of New Orleans is a private, nonprofit organization, which is also designated as the city's official art agency. So Maya has to navigate an interesting business environment, running a donor-funded business that has to cater to the public and satisfy the demands of city government. If I was to ask you on this, Maya, let me, let me ask you, uh, I live near Palmer Park, and this has been a, a great turnaround for our community, but, but it's not all you do, is it? No, no. I mean, the magical thing about the arts market, uh, which does, as you say, take place on the last Saturday of every month, is that it's an opportunity for artists um, to grow their businesses. Um, we've had a lot of success out of the market from people who start there, do once a month, go on to other arts markets around the city and around the state, and then move on to such festivals as Jazz Fest and Festival International possibly then graduating into their own galleries. So we really look at the arts market as kind of like a... Um, it's kind of an incubator. Yeah, exactly, guys. exactly. And it's really, we count it as success for artists to sort of move on into new phases of their career. How does this get started? Uh, somebody's talented, they've, they've put together some pieces, they approach you? Yeah, uh, by and large, um, uh, we have uh, an extensive explanation of the arts market on our website, which now is kind of the way that we're getting the word out. And uh, we are a juried arts market. So we have a once a month jury where we have uh, artists who currently participate in the arts market and also members of the arts council. Uh, an artist would submit an application along with images of their work and they would then go through this peer review process. So, so it's not just pay your fee and get a booth and... No, no. Um, and that's that's something that, you know, we're really proud of at the arts market. And it's, it's a way that we just kind of, we're looking to present, you know, the highest quality level of fine art and craft that we possibly can. And we find that this jury system really um, keeps that level, you know, where we want it. It's tempting to describe John Fleming as a mask maker because that's what he does. That's how you usually define people. Is a, but it would be a little bit like describing Giorgio Armani as a guy who makes pants. That's, what, that's the way I would think. John Fleming's mask are works of true art, crafted out of leather and extraordinarily beautiful and, and expressive. Uh, masking is a part of New Orleans tradition, a fundamental element of Mardi Gras, and John's art tells us something about our city. The fact that he's been 
making these amazing pieces of art for here for 30 years and has raised a family and owns his own home also tells us something about the strength of the fine art market in New Orleans. John, let's start with two obvious questions. How do you make these amazing masks and who buys them? Well, the first question is I make them very carefully. Right. Uh, after 30 years of developing an idea, it's, um, it's like a language I have with the material I use. And who buys them? I'm always surprised and <laughs> grateful that the people who do purchase them appreciate something as eclectic as this because I've tried to take something that is tradition to here and in many celebratory cultures is a tradition masking. It's, it's, it goes way back in our psyche as human beings. And um, I came to New Orleans with these masks already germinated in my mind. New Orleans gave me the place to really develop them. Wow. Now, uh, when I, when so many people think of masks and they think of just, you know, all the hundreds of vendors you see in the city, but these are very, very special. And I would imagine they're more expensive, right? I mean, how much do these they, they, range? They can be. They can well, be. Well, I do them everything from $100 to $5,000. Wow. It depends on the amount of work involved. It depends on if it's a one-of-a-kind, if it's a limited edition, or if it's an open edition. Where do you start out? Do you, do you go out and buy, you said, skins? I mean, how, how does oh, that happen? Oh, it, it started... Really, the first mask I actually made, the idea came in Bolivia when I went to a, a little town called Oruro, which has a, a lot of devils in their ceremonies. And they were made out of metal, tin. We were hammered out into these bulbous eyes. It was just fabulous. You know? And so I went to Francine and I said, this has is, this is really got me. And we got to Rio and I decided uh, to spend a year there and, and um, had to figure out something to do. And I bought some leather while I was teaching English and I just played with it in the apartment. And when I got back to Paris, I had a little style already. And then I worked with fashion industry. And because in Paris and in France at the time, they didn't have any craft shows. It was all structured, very bureaucratic, and you had to have, you know, you couldn't work au noir, the, the, you know, the black side, you could, had to have all your papers in order, and I was an American. So it was a little difficult. and. Um, but I, I went into the fashion industry where people didn't, I wasn't selling them so much. I wanted recognition. And it was great. The fashion show that happened, I'd had a dozen models. They were doing a German line of clothing, an Italian line of handbags, and this French woman was designing shoes, and I did the masks. And uh, it, it just really caused a lot of talk, and it was really nice. But then I ended up with a lot of accolades and a bucket full of masks, you know? Because <laughs> <laughs> there's no deal to buy them. And, uh, so then I went to Saint-Tropez, and um, I thought, well, maybe I get them in some shop windows. So I went before the season opened, and I met an old man. He was wonderful. He had a, uh, a little store, they call it Farsiatrap, which is like jokes, like the little Chinese finger oh, things yeah. where you stick them in it. And uh, he'd been living in Central Pay all these years, and he was one of the regulars off-season and stuff. And, and I just sat down with him, and he was probably in his 70s when I met him. And, and I said, you know, I've been coming here for a couple summers and working. I always met you. You know, I saw you and said hi. And he says, yeah, you never stop talking to me. So he's talked, and he says, <laughs> he says, what you doing? And I told him. He says, bring him over and let me see him. He says, you know, I got a collection of masks. He takes me upstairs. He goes, masks from all over the world up here. T turns out he's very well known in town amongst the people who live there. He says, you want to come over Saturday night? I'm having a party. I think you'll like it. So I said, um, sure, you know. But then Francine, my wife at the time, she got ill, and I took her back to Aix-en-Provence. And uh, he said, well, if you got to go back, 
leave the masks with me. I want to show them to everybody at the party. He called me up a week later. I really had nothing to lose. And he said, I sold all of them. Bridget Bardot bought the first one. David Niven bought the second one. That's the party you missed. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the first sales I had in a mask were to, you know, Pretty celebrities. It was fun. But <laughs> then I just started making them and working with interior designers, theater people, things right. like that. That, what a great story. And then it went <laughs> out to many others. <laughs> I had very good luck. <laughs> you know, my, let me ask you something. I, you know, when you're working with artists, um, you know, you, you're plus you're serving a couple of different uh, lords over here with the city itself. And they, um, is it tough? I mean, artists, uh, I know we have an artist with us and you're an artist yourself, but uh, um, there's a lot of egos involved. I mean, how do, you, how, do you, how do you get your arms around all that? I think that for me, my big thing is just communication. You know, I think that people, you know, when you're working, you know, it's like the mar there's the market as a whole that I need to understand where, you know, we have anywhere from 75 to maybe 140 artists out depending on the month. And, and I need to kind of be able to see that as, as a whole thing. But also as an artist and as someone who has done art markets, um, I also understand the individual in their 10 so by 10. Right, I've, and I've, yeah, I've been on both sides and I think that that's, that's helpful to me in, in this job. You know, so it's like I'm, I'm thinking about everybody, but also I understand if you're in your 10 by 10 spot and there's too much sun or it gets puddly when it rains or whatever, I mean, that's, that's a concern for art markets. Um, I also understand the individual in their 10 so by 10. Right, I've, and I've, yeah, I've been on both sides and I think that that's, that's helpful to me in, in this job. You know, so it's like I'm, I'm thinking about everybody, but also I understand if you're in your 10 by 10 spot and there's too much sun or it gets puddly when it rains or whatever, I mean, that's, that's a concern for your business and I definitely have, you know, I can, I can connect with that. So I think the way that I just, I like to deal with people is by being really open for them to come talk to me. Well, you're doing a great job, but I'm going to ask you now a section we call the checklist. Where we ask you a couple of questions you probably wouldn't find on a loan application. Um, we're going <laughs> to start. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> John, what, what book are you reading? What book am I reading? Yeah, I read a book recently called Shantaram, which is really nice. Yeah, I mean, it had a personal relationship because it, it's about a guy that travels around the world. And uh, I just really liked it. It's about, a, you know, it's a very wordy novel, but it's about an Australian guy who ends up in India and Afghanistan. And, and it's a good adventure tale, somewhat based on his life. So I'm sure he could have been a Southern writer and embellished it quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Southern Australia, I guess. <laughs> My, what about you? What do you I'm actually rereading A Confederacy of Dunces. Oh, um, I read that quite a few years ago before I moved to New Orleans. And, um, Is that what brought you here? Well, it didn't scare me away, let's say that. <laughs> um, so I read it quite a while ago, and now that I've lived here for just about seven years now, um, I... I felt like going back to it and kind of like reading it from more of an insider's perspective than an outsider one. So. And my, let me just ask you, when, when things obviously go wrong from time to time, they're going to go wrong for everybody. Yeah. Um, and I always think that great line that you don't drown from falling in the water, you drown from failing to pull yourself out of the water. <laughs> they, uh, what, what do you do? What's your coping mechanism when things go wrong? Uh, laughter, totally. Really? Just trying to be, like, have an appropriate amount of humor and lightheartedness because Everything is temporary. You know, it may seem like you're never going to get out of something when you're in the moment, like if it's raining, but you know what? The rain is going to stop and then you move on to the next thing. So really just trying to 
to laugh about it as much as you possibly can in the moment and know that sooner or later it, you'll get through it. <laughs> Next time it rains, I'm going over to Palmer Park. I want to see, you see how you make it. I will be the person with the smile plastered on my face <laughs> in shrimp boots because, you know, they invented shrimp boots for shrimping and for our markets. Oh, that's so, I didn't yeah. I didn't know that was the second. Uh, the, uh, Jen, what do you do when, when things get tangled up? Oh, when things get tangled up, well, I play music and I... Um, I have the great good fortune of having a partner in my life that is uh, pretty good at not putting up with me staying there too long. Oh. <laughs> not self-indulging myself with it, and I bless her for it. <laughs> she has to be pretty strong. <laughs> Let's, um, this is the time of the show we usually uh, go to the inbox where our producer uh, picks a question that uh, came in from a listener. And uh, usually it's, it's pertinent to the guests we're having uh, having for this week. Grant, what, what, do you, what do you got? Peter, we got a lot of interesting questions about art and commerce this week. This one that I chose, though, is sort of almost philosophical, and I think I chose the right one for this group of people. It's from a person called RGB1421 who asks... It's catchy. Art is only truly great if it is the unique and personal perspective of the artist. There is no common market driver for art sales. Though Coke and Pepsi are competitors, everybody gets thirsty. An ad for Coke is in some way an ad for quenching thirst that benefits Pepsi too. Nobody needs art. Can you A, create that need, and B, market something that to a mass audience that is uniquely individual? Wow. Boy, that was... How about that? That was very much deeper than we usually, we usually get. Yeah, <laughs> the, uh, I'm not even through my salad. Yet. Oh, my I mean, God. Golly. It's usually like boxes of briefs. You know, this is not the way we go. They, what do you think is... Um, can you be uh, unique as an artist and still have it have mass appeal? Um, that's uh, it's it's really hard. I mean, I, I would start off by sort of, I would kind of disagree with with the idea that we don't need art as humans. I mean, I, I I believe, you know, from cave paintings to modern leather masks. I mean, it, art has always been a part of us, and if we didn't need it, we would have sloughed it off like our tails long ago, you know, so I, I'd kind of take... You don't want to get into that whole evolution well, thing, that's right, right, yeah, it's, it's, show, that's a whole different show. That, that, that's out <laughs> to dinner, probably. But, um, but no, I think that really the uniqueness comes from the interaction that can occur between the artist and the, the, the patron. And I think that that's what makes art markets very unique and special, whether it's Jazz Fest where John just was or out at the arts market or even Rhino Gallery um, where artists are the employees there. And, and you, when you can talk to the artist and communicate with them and why did you make this and why, how am I connecting with it? I just bought a painting from someone who, and it's essentially an abstract uh, portrait of a gentleman in a wheelchair and my uncle was in a wheelchair and you never see portraits of right. people in wheelchairs usually and so it was it was a big connection for me but what really drew me to it was talking to the artist about it and understanding his connection to it and things like that so so I don't know I think the it's the unique part of art often comes, at, you know, as much from the product as from the interaction between maker and purchaser. Well, and John, and before you answer, I want to tell people that they just did put sherry in your turtle soup, so this might <laughs> might affect your affect your answer. But what, what do you okay. think? <laughs> Pardon me. What do you think? I mean, you think there's uh, there you could be unique and still have a mass uh, mass market for art? Well, I think you have to find a way to do that if you want to be an artist and satisfy yourself at the same time. Um, so you don't have to be a probably. 
you don't have to be a starving artist. I mean, even probably the most economically successful artist of, our, of the 20th century, Picasso, he basically said one of the only times I've heard him say something humble was, um, I'm nothing but a public entertainer who understands his time. And I thought, when you think about it, that's right. He's, he, the entertainer part is somebody's trying to see something different, to let you see something different through him or to amuse yourself. He opens up things that you don't get every day. But you have to know where you're at and what's around you and what people need. And people do need art. They don't always know it. People sometimes buy art for investment. They don't buy it for what they like. This is just the facts of life. And if you want to make a living doing it, it's called balance. Figure out a way that you satisfy this. At times, you may be a little out of balance for a while. Keep your vision in sight. Life's like tacking in a sailboat. You know, you're not going in a straight line. But just keep your little, keep the horizon line there. That's how I, what I try to do. You have found that that art business balance. So that's, a, that's words from a, a guy that knows. They, you know, uh, right now we usually talk about a, a publicly traded company in the region. And my students at Tulane write research reports on some of the local companies. And the company I thought I'd take a minute on today was uh, Cyberonics. It's a company that's actually headquartered out of Houston. And what they do is they make a medical device that is put into your shoulder and then a lead runs into your into your brain. And it is for people with epilepsy. And these are mainly for people who medicine has not helped at all. And uh, so they move to this kind of condition. And this ticker symbol CYBX, it trades on the NASDAQ, uh, trades uh, about in the high 30s. But I was with the company recently and uh, two interesting things about it. One is that the same device, they believe, has applications for depression, which is a much larger market than, than, than epilepsy. Uh, of course, the problem is getting the insurance companies to pay for it. And the other thing that's interesting, I always find these companies, it's always some little tidbit, uh, these, these, these products have a battery in them, and the battery runs out about every six or seven years, so it creates kind of an annuity for the company uh, of replacing these. Uh, yeah, so, and, and unlike uh, like a heart, like a pacemaker, the average person with a pacemaker is about 70 years old. The average um, person with epilepsy that's being treated is in the uh, is about 30 years old. So you get a lot more times coming coming through. So we thought that was that was a little bit interesting. But now we're going to do a new feature, uh, which is the heck with what my students and I are doing. We're gonna gonna ch we're gonna check our lunch money. Lunch money is our out to lunch stock portfolio. We're building a portfolio of stocks chosen each week by our guests on the show. Let's take a look at what stocks we're going to add to the portfolio. Uh, Maya, John, I need a stock from each of you. I'll start with, uh, start with Maya. What, what stock do you want to add to our lunch money? Um, well, I wanted to keep with the theme and with my um, chosen profession. So um, I chose Sotheby's um, as they are a publicly traded arts-involved business. Um, arts businesses often are nonprofit or privately held, so it's, it's a little bit of a small field to choose from. But in their real estate market, they also have a local presence in New Orleans, which which I liked. But um, you know, they just sold the Scream for almost 120 million dollars about two weeks ago. So hopefully that'll that'll do some good for their stocks. <laughs> well, that's a that's that's a great example too. And in Sotheby's, it's public. It uh, trades on the New York Stock Exchange uh, under the ticker symbol BID, which is pretty cool, really. Yeah, there's a auction house. It's not too bad. That's like it's <laughs> <laughs> like Brinker's International, which owns uh, Chili's and Macaroni Grill. Their ticker symbol is EAT. Oh. You know, that's, that's when you're really getting there. There's, uh, but John, what, uh, what would your stock be? Well, I'm going to pick a stock within the leather industry. I am not a big stockholder in any one thing, but um, Tandy Corporation is a corporation in America that's uh, 
it was one of the first places I bought a piece of leather when I first came to the States back in the 70s, came back to the States. And I, it was one of the only local sources for it. There was a couple of small places. And now they have, they've gone into <coughs> selling the company, nearly going bankrupt. I think, I don't know who bought them out after, then it became Leatherworks, and then it became this other one. But what I kind of saw was this umbrella that was going around buying up small leather companies all over the country. And one by one, they would fall out, and the only place you can get leather is tannies. So it's something that would do well that it does well for me, because it's one of the few local sources where I can get what I need, other than going overseas and having it shipped. So I watch it. That's a, you know, what a great, great, what great stories these both are. You know, with the book we use on campus for our stock analysis is Peter Lynch, <coughs> and he's always talking about buying companies you know and, and things. And, you know, let's face it, who would know much about that business other than somebody who was making, yeah. working with leather. That, the ticker symbol uh, uh, on that stock is uh, ARCA. And you know, Tandy, um, Tandy was originally part of what was Radio Shack and, exactly. uh, and it all spun out. So that, that's, that is a great, these are gonna be great additions to the, uh, uh, to the portfolio. Maya Volkmer, John Fleming, thank you so much for joining me today on Out to Lunch. It's been a lot of fun talking about art and hopefully you've picked up a couple of good stocks for, uh, for our lunch money uh, section here. This is going to be great. Appreciate your, your help very, very much. We'll stay in touch and look forward to having a lunch again soon. Uh, folks, and we like to have the listeners keep up with what's, uh, what's new, so keep us up on your progress and uh, send it that way. Our, our guests today on Out to Lunch have been artist John Fleming and arts administrator uh, Maya Volkmer. To see John Fleming's extraordinary leather mask or to find out more about the arts market and the Arts Council of New Orleans, follow the links on our website, itsneworleans.com and www.no.org. Our show is recorded live over lunch at Commander's Palace in New Orleans. Commander's Palace serves lunch Monday to Friday, jazz brunch on Saturday and Sunday with live music and dinner seven nights a week. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Our web designer and digital guru is Cliff Brigden. Jennifer Smith is our researcher. Mitch Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can keep up with our continuing adventures in Crescent City Commerce by liking It's New Orleans on Facebook, and you can get in touch with us by email. We're outtolunch at itsneworleans.com or tweet us. We're outtolunchnola. To listen to past shows or to get this show as a podcast, go to www.no.org or itsneworleans.com. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting and WWNO. Until we meet again around the table here at Commander's Palace, I'm Peter Raschuti. Thanks for joining me on Out to Lunch. <laughs>